Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 72 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's, uh, what, Tuesday morning, May 1st. May 1st. 9.30, May 1st. Uh, May Day. May oh, Day. Oh, wait, no, it's it's Loyalty Day. I, so I didn't know about this. Tell me. Tell me about Loyalty Day, Steve. Well, so the internet did a, did a classic Trump derangement freakout last night when they discovered that President Trump was proclaiming today to be Loyalty Day. <laughs> it, it, does, it does sound alarming, until, but... In, until you point out that every president since Eisenhower has done it because, after all, what's, what's, what's the proper reaction to May Day... But Loyalty Day. All right, so this goes back to sort of 20th century battles between uh, commemoration of this date as commemoration of the Haymarket Massacre and sort of a, you know, leftist holiday tradition. So American presidents going back to uh, I don't know how far um, have been touting this as, no, 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 a day to focus on loyalty to the country and appreciation for freedom. Loyalty to the country. Interesting. Not Interesting. loyalty to the president. Did, did, did our current president say anything uh, squarely in describing this or did he just no. roll out? sort of the standard no, no. May 1st. This is this is normal. This yeah. is the the classic, you know, boilerplate proclamation of loyalty day. It does it does it does context matters, right? Um, so it's May 1st, Bobby, we are entering month 2 of the interminable NBA playoffs. Yeah, it's uh I've lost a lot of interest with the Spurs being out of the picture, <laughs> but I will say that they're these other lesser teams did not stand the lesser outcomes. teams. Hey, look, give me something. There, my my guys are out. Kawhi Leonard's disappeared. I'm having trouble. These lesser teams are pretty interesting this year. I like some of the storylines. We're going to talk about that in the frivolity section. I guess uh, we'll we'll talk about how it's May first and the Mets are still in first place. Okay, so we'll talk a little MLB and a little NBA, and then at the very end, maybe a little bit, uh, a very little bit of Westworld and a little bit of Avengers. So here's the problem: I haven't seen Infinity War, and you ha- you're not caught up on Westworld. So. <laughs> It's like, you know... We have a standoff. There are so many things I want to say about this week's episode of Westworld, but I don't think I can really do almost any of it. Like, it would give away the end of season one, which you haven't seen yet, exactly. to even open my mouth about this episode. All right, so we are in a bit of an obstacle there, but that's okay because we have a lot of other stuff you might to say, talk about. You might say a, a, a standoff, Western style. Oh, a Western standoff. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, that reminds me, I saw the, I saw Avengers last night in the preview for Solo was shown again. Ah, that's you know, coming out soon. Some Western elements right, there. So, Maybe Solo will be the next movie we both go see and, and review contemporaneously <laughs> exactly. on this podcast. All right, um, so what else is there to talk about? I was going to say, why does anyone listen to us if, we don't, if we're not going to talk about Westworld and the Avengers? It's, it's either for the boy band talk or maybe National Security We got Law. a lot of comments about the boy band. You know, I think we touched a nerve there. <laughs> I, I actually, I think that we could, I think we need to come back to that topic at some point. <laughs> you think there are some, some raw emotions out there about boy bands? I think there are some stones left unturned. Oh, gosh. Okay, uh, but on but, the but national security front, yeah, yeah. National yeah. Security so we have a cluster of topics under the general heading of of counterterrorism's uh, armed conflict aspect and the U.S. government's use of military force, especially vis-a-vis detention, right? Steve, what have we got under that heading? Well, so there's a lot of interesting stuff at Gitmo. There was a really important ruling in the 9-11 trial last week with regard to al-Hasawi's motion to dismiss the case for lack of personal jurisdiction about when the conflict actually started right, with Al-Qaeda. That sentence begun, begins in a very unpromising way, yes. right? A lack of personal jurisdiction, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But actually, it turns out to be a very significant ruling relating to how we define or how the U.S. government's uh, position on the 
idea that there is an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda and when did it begin, it, it doesn't settle that question, but it gives us some interesting insight and we're going to look closely at, at how that's uh, how that's developing in the military commission system, but it has larger implications. And why, and why we're not necessarily all that convinced that it actually came out correctly. Um, we say we, you might, you might mean you, well, but we'll get to that. Right, right result, perhaps, maybe not necessarily the most convincing analysis. I think it's going to be interesting to talk it through. We're going to go into the weeds on that one. Okay. Uh, and then while we're under the heading of when do hostilities begin, we'll have a quick note on um, some recent headlines uh, declaring in the headlines, not so much from what the government said, an end of major combat operations against the Islamic State. Uh, we've heard those sorts of <laughs> phrases before. We'll touch base with that briefly. And then what else have we got out of Gitmo? So there's actually this interesting story about KSM Kalichik Mohammed and an MRI apparently revealing that he has serious um, uh, damage to his brain. Um, from potentially, allegedly, some of the mistreatment he received at the hands of the CIA. Interesting how that might affect his ability to stand trial and potentially be sentenced to a capital sentence in the 9-11 case? I'll I'll predict right now, (laughs) before we've talked about it, that it won't ultimately derail it, but it'll certainly create a lot of litigation Still more baggage. Speaking of litigation, we're still waiting for the CMCR to take the next step in the Al-Nashiri case, which continues to remain on hold. Yeah, there's a, no shortage of delays there. Uh, then we'll uh, turn our attention to a related topic. Well, so the the yesterday was supposed to be the deadline under President Trump's rather belated Guantanamo executive order for Secretary Mattis to propose recommendations and policies to govern the future disposition of detainees, including potential transfers to Guantanamo. I assume the report was filed, Bobby. I haven't seen anything about it. Right. So whatever, whatever's going on hasn't yet. If something was filed, it's not yet gone public. So we'll, we'll comment on that a little bit, but well, not much. I, I have, I have, hey, why should we let that stop us? Let's comment on it at length. I have, I have a suspicion about what, what is in it or what is not in it, as the case may be. All right, I'll be interested to hear that. Uh, uh, and then we're gonna staying talk- with detainees. Right. We're going to talk about Doe versus Mattis, you know, the our friend, the U.S. citizen who's still in detention in Iraq. Uh, it's, a, it's a, you know how like NPR, when they do their drives, they talk about sustaining members. I feel like the military commission's, you know, set of issues, the seven layer dip and Doe v. Mattis are our sustaining members, <laughs> keeping us with content and, week and, after week. And AUMF. And AUMF, but really Doe v. Mattis has been there for us uh, throughout the show. And we so, so there was oral argument we'll send, last. We'll send a t-shirt. Indeed. There was oral argument last, what, uh, Friday morning? Friday on the, the DC qu- circuit. On the question of whether he should be transferred to a classified country that we all know to be Saudi Arabia. Exactly. So we'll give a little recap and, and sort of uh, we'll, we'll weigh in on what seemed to be going on there. Um, uh, pivoting a bit, uh, our friend Steve Aftergood uh, sent around yesterday a really interesting recently uh, declassified uh, new district court ruling by Chief Judge McMahon in the Southern District of New York in a FOIA case involving the CIA. Um, interesting stuff to say about selective disclosure and when selective disclosure does or does not disclose the the matter for purposes of FOIA. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting. It's a little bit down the weeds, but it's worthwhile. So we'll dig into Judge McMahon's ruling. Yep. Uh, we want to talk about the Mueller Protection Bill, which got out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, as I think I predicted this the, here last week, um, yep. on a 14-7 vote on Thursday with four Republicans, Bobby, joining the Democrats and voting in favor. We'll see. We'll talk about what's going on there, and, and I guess we'll prognosticate on whether that's the end of it or, or not. <laughs> um, speaking of Congress, right, we had the official denouement of the Hipsy investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Although, wasn't there some note in it somewhere where the majority says, this, uh, as to some topic, we plan further action in 2019? Please or don't. <laughs> oh, they, but they will. We're, we're not going to. Well, not go if they're majority. Not if they're not the majority anymore. You know, my preference is to not pay too much attention to the things that uh, the 
Hipsy, to Devin Nunes. Hipsy, well, Nunes in particular, but what what the Hipsy process is doing these days. Yet uh, there are a handful of their recommendations that are kind of fun and interesting. To talk <laughs> repeal about. the Logan Act. Yeah, yeah, repeal the Logan Act. That that may have to be the title. We'll see. We'll have a good a few good title. Nominees. You know, we, I don't want to I don't want to prejudge the title. Right. So um, we'll talk about some recommendations, and then uh, speaking of reports, we have another report to look at. The the FISA transparency report is mandated by the USA Freedom Act of 2015. Yeah, there's sort of a flashy stat that got everyone, including me initially. I'll be I will be uh, willing to admit, uh, thinking that whoa, some something really dramatic is going on here. And then thanks to wiser heads, you know, the David Chris's and, and Marcy Wheelers of the world saying. Yeah, you're, you're missing all the nuance. This isn't necessarily nearly as exciting or interesting as it's Right, it wasn't as interesting a year for the FISA court as some people right. initially thought. But I think what it actually does is it confirms something or it provides some statistical evidence to support something that a lot of us who teach in this area often try to explain not very successfully about earlier years of statistics regarding FISA court denials and what they signify. So we're going to talk about that, and I think that will do it. Then we'll have some frivolity. Sound good? Sound works for me. I mean, I, I, that's plenty. Yeah, so that, that ought to do it. All right, so let's dive in. Let's start with the, the Gitmo end of hostilities ruling. So this arose in the context of the 9-11 trial. Um, and basically a motion filed by one of the defendants. Interestingly, not all of them. There are other challenges pending. Yeah. Um, but this is from Al-Hasawi. Um, and the question, the, the claim Al-Hasawi is raising is that he can't be prosecuted for things he did to help plan 9-11 because we weren't in an armed conflict with Al-Qaeda until we actually had the attacks on the morning of September 11th. All right, and so this comes before Judge Paul, and it's your standard motion to dismiss uh, criminal charges for oh, yeah, lack stand, of personal jurisdiction. Stand, your standard motion to dismiss. <laughs> this happens all the time. Uh, so the personal jurisdiction provisions of the Military Commissions Act uh, essentially can be boiled down to requiring as a necessary element across the possibilities that there be hostilities at the time of the alleged offense conduct. And, and, and the statute defines hostilities to mean any conflict subject to the laws of war. That's 10 U.S.C. 948A9. So let me give uh, sort of a breakdown of how Paul sort of walked through this. It's, it's interesting. So what First of all, he begins by saying, look, uh, this, the test then is, were the laws of war applicable? Well, well, that's not an entirely clear concept, he says, because there are some who would look to international law, things like the Tadich test, and say, that's how you know whether you have an armed conflict that triggers the laws of war. But then he makes a gesture calculated to inflame my colleague here, <laughs> where he says, but there's also, as we see in Balul, uh, this idea of a domestic laws of war that maybe is somehow different. I got to say, I, I found that an extremely unhelpful full passage the the I, the statute defines the I just want to say this again the statute defines the term hostilities to mean any conflict subject to the laws of war I just want to say it again. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, um, I, I read that as saying, I mean, so I guess someone could say well, it doesn't say the international laws of war, but I don't think Congress in 2006 was thinking about the domestic laws of war that would later be invented to salvage one conviction from the Guantanamo military commission. I just think it's a, it's it's not necessary to the to the analysis of what follows either this idea that somehow you're going to get a different definition of hostilities and a different definition of a conflict subject to the laws of war. Uh, it's it's unfortunate, I think. But never, since it's not doing any work, let's not dwell on it. Indeed. Um, he goes on to dig a bit deeper and says, look, uh, we have to go beyond the plain text. I, in fact, the whole thing feels like he did it in order to explain why he's not just purporting to apply the plain language of the text. He then says, we got to look at context. we got to look at other things. Um, he says, first of all, if there's 
anything uh, else that's clear about the statute, it's that it was uh, intended by Congress to enable a military commission prosecution of the 9-11 plotters, if no one else. And the idea being that, therefore, it must follow that there's jurisdiction to cover the offense conduct related to the 9-11 attacks. Um, and he says there's textual proof of this as well because the words the word before 9-11 is included in the language. So can, can, I, can I read the actual passage from his opinion on this point? Yeah, sure. Because I, I, I want to tear it apart. So this, oh, is, on, okay. this is on page 6, um, and this is what, paragraph, uh, part 4, paragraph A5. Um, where Judge Pohl writes, to begin with, the commission finds the plain language of the 2009 MCA contemplates prosecution for offenses occurring on, before, or after September 11th. The fact that Congress expressly so stated runs directly contrary to any assertion that its intended formulation of the term laws of war in the same statute would foreclose military commission jurisdiction on or before September 11, 2001, period. Okay, I completely disagree with that statutory analysis. Congress uses the term on, before, or after as a sort of placeholder to make sure that it's, to, to leave open the possibility right, that when it passes a statute, it could apply retroactively. That does not of itself manifest any intent on Congress's part to override the international laws of war insofar as they might not otherwise have allowed for the assertion of military jurisdiction before 9-11. So the textual argument you're saying is not the open and shut conflict. Right. He Paul is reading the on, before, or after September 11th language as intentionally overriding any constraints that the not just the international yeah. law, but the rest of the statute, insofar as the rest of the statute incorporates international law, might have imposed. And I just think that he has no support for that, and there's so much powerful evidence to the contrary. To the okay, so I don't think I agree that the text, the purported potential textual conflict is is not terribly persuasive. I find it much more compelling when he argues that Congress uh, certainly intended for the people involved in plotting the 9-11 attack to be subject to trial by commission. Then why did they pass that or not? So I I certainly agree it was Congress's intent. I thought we were supposed to be textualists, right? And so if we're... But that's why he says the text is not entirely clear. But I just disagree with him on this point. Like, I mean, the the text of the statute defines hostilities, literally, right? And and this is the point the the government relies on this in other contexts, as any conflict subject to the laws of war. If Congress were to define hostilities that way... That, and that, unlike the language that he's referring to, that's in the actual definition section under the jurisdictional provision. So I just, I don't understand how you can say, well, it's clear they wanted to try the nylon defendants no matter what. Well, but you said a moment ago you agreed that this was the intent of Congress to cover the 9-11 plot. Sure, but it, but insofar as... And but, you're not a strict textualist, so why does it bother you so much? Because the intent of Congress to try the 9 imagine if it came out, right? Imagine if the government charged the 9-11 plotters with material support. Right. Um, Would that overcome to you the ex post facto violation that the D.C. Circuit has found with the material support charge? Because it was tracking your argument. So what I'm trying to say is, yes, it was Congress's intent and purpose to subject the 9-11 defendants to military commission trial. But we didn't know when Congress passed the MCA what that trial would look like. And so insofar, you know, I'm going in circles here. All I'm trying to say is jurisdictional statutes are supposed to be interpreted, you know, Specifically, directly, the jurisdictional statute says hostilities mean a conflict to the laws of war. If Congress meant to override international law, right, there are decades of precedent saying Congress has to say expressly in the statute, 
right, or make clear its intent to override international law. So as to that, Paul, well, just to close the loop on that. So I think it, I think you and I agree that Congress did intend to create jurisdiction over the 9-11 plot. There's, That's fine, but I, I don't see any of this yet. One argument he does not make that I'm a little surprised he didn't make is that it would be a little odd to sort of draw a line in time between the moment of culmination of the plot. So presumably, no one's going to argue, if, if you accept it all, that there is any armed conflict, which is certainly a premise he begins with, right? He says, look, this is, it's certainly settled that once you have the 9-11 attacks come to fruition, you've got armed conflict. So then the question in this case, in contrast to, say, the ones involving USS right. Cole, which is very, very uh, much more distant in time and in nexus to the 9-11 attacks, uh, it seems a little odd to me, and, and he didn't actually say this, which surprises me, to draw a line and say, well, the the moment, let's say, uh, I guess once they've seized the planes, the, or or maybe only once the planes have crashed, why not have a, a full and complete set of facts involving yeah. those attacks and have it kind of have the ability to tie into the day of 9-11? Well, right. So, I mean, so this is the weirdest thing about this rule. I mean, so I think you and I disagree about the contours of his statutory analysis. Fine. But the weirdest thing about his rule is he says, I don't have to decide when the conflict started. All I have to decide is that it started before 9-11. Right. And so, yeah, that, so that's the punchline of this whole deal is he is not saying when it started. He is saying that, if nothing else, the 9-11 plot itself is encompassed. Now, I don't think that's weird. I actually think that is, is sort of a way of making the argument I was just making, which is that if you accept that the moment of the completion of the 9-11 attacks counts, uh, which I do, then you ought to be able to encompass within that at least some reasonable extent of the preparatory activity on a, I'm, I'm sure there's a name. In, okay, in, but, in, but here's, but here, so now flip to page 11, right? So on page 11, Paul says, under these unique and specific circumstances, the commission has little difficulty finding it appropriate to defer to the effective determinations of the political branches that hostilities existed as of September 11th, fine, and for at least some period before. Right. Where was the effective determination by Congress that hostilities existed before? Simply by providing as a sort of as a sort of rote statutory provision that the right. commission could have jurisdiction for offenses committed before 9/11. That was Congress saying we were in an armed conflict before 9/11. Right. So I, I think that he doesn't get a lot of my. He makes that assertion. That particular assertion is not particularly well justified. But I come back to the view that it does make sense if you accept that the moment of the attacks when they culminate. If that's armed conflict, then some degree, certainly, certainly, you could make a plausible argument that the season of the planes no, no, would count, so, and, so then, it, and then it becomes a question of line drawing. How far I think, back? Can I think. Go? I, I think people. I think I'm not perhaps articulating where you and I differ. Right? Of course, I agree that the armed conflict began at some point before the planes hit the north. Before right. the first plane hit the north tower. Right. I mean, of course, that's true. We've talked before about right at what point on, on December seventh, right? right? And I would have no problem. If, for example, Paul said, you know, no later than when these guys breached security at the, whatever, Portland airport, right, on the morning of September 11th, we were in an armed conflict. Fine. I just, the, it's not the result here that bothers me, right? It's the, it, you know, the, the international law of armed conflict is no never mind to the analysis of whether hostilities existed before 9-11. That's, I just don't yeah, no, that's a, Yes, that's a separate issue. Let's, let's but, zero but, in on that. But, but this is why I say, so I said at the top that I think I agree with the result. 
of this ruling, but not the reasoning. But not the reasoning, you, right? right? And the problem I have with the reasoning is I just don't understand how you can read the Military Commissions Act as basically re- reflecting Congress's intent to expressly override the laws of armed conflict. Right. And well, if you can to be fair, he doesn't say that it's necessary to do that. He says that if it's a conflict, it's definitely an if. It's not. A, he does not say that if we had to apply international law, we'd be out of luck here. Fortunately, the statute trumps international law. He says. If there's a conflict, if if there is, it's certainly not saying that there is, but if there is, then the statute as last in time would control over international law. That's what he's saying. But that's not. And, but, and but you may but, be right. But that, that is not how we normally interpret statutes. Like there's no the last in time. The question here, the charming Betsy canon of statutory interpretation, provides that we assume that Congress does not accidentally override international law. Right, and so we require some indication of Congress's express intent to depart from international law. Right. Kavanaugh relies on this sure. in Belul, and, and you don't think he's you don't think he's being fair in treating the statute as clearly intending to cover something beforehand. I don't know how you can. I don't know how you can yeah. do that in the face of the definition of hostilities as incorporating the international laws. Of I war. think that the place where there's more room for you to be okay with him than I think you think there is is on the intent of Congress part, and it's because you feel that for a personal jurisdiction provision. We need to be more strict textualist. Yeah, which, which is or, interesting. Or at the very least, I don't understand why people who are usually textualists all of a sudden are like the text is irrelevant. Well, so the important thing here, of course, is that he's not actually remotely conceding that international law would yield a different result. Well, but so let's talk about he's that. He's avoiding that question entirely. I understand that, but Bobby, I mean, let me just ask you plain, right? Do you think that international law on September 10, two thousand and one, would have recognized the existence of a non-international armed conflict between the U.S. and Al Qaeda? So I think that here you can't just judge it from the point there it depends on what temporal perspective you're bringing to bear in a real serious way so let's switch to the pearl harbor analogy Uh right so everyone agrees that once once the granted that's an international armed conflict so we have a we have a slightly different uh set of questions and doctrinal concepts to bring to bear but just to tease out the idea right at what point in the japanese operational planning and execution of the operation does it become fair to say, in retrospect at least, once it all does unfold a certain way, what time? Do, at what point in time does it become fair to say you have an international armed conflict? Is it only when, you know, no one would say it's when the bombs are dropped, I think. Maybe some would. Uh, that'd be a pretty formalistic approach and not terribly realistic, perhaps. Uh, maybe it's when Japanese planes enter U.S. airspace. I think that's pretty strict. What about it's when the, the launch order is given? That's that's more plausible. It gets more plausible as you as you get to there. But why why then? Why isn't it when the carriers uh, set set forth uh, from their home bases on the operational plan? And and obviously you have to draw a line somewhere. But I don't think you can say that the law sets a clear and specific moment where in the in the constellation of decisions that the Japanese Imperial Navy and Japanese authorities made in that process to launch the attack, at what point did hostilities begin? Unbeknownst to the U.S., who did not know this was happening. But but by that logic, we can be at war and not know it. But this is why I'm saying the temporal perspective matters a great deal. It's it's entirely academic to think back. When was it an armed conflict in terms of uh, the Japanese pre-planning? But don't you agree that at some point before those planes were above Hawaii, there was, in fact, armed conflict? So I don't... Or do you, or do you take a more strict test and say, nope, not until they're in American airspace? So I think I, I, certainly by the time they cross into American airspace, right? Yeah, I think everybody agrees about certainly that. Certainly by that moment. So here's the problem. Imagine the following hypothetical, right? Imagine that the Japanese carriers launch the planes, 
right? And just before the planes enter American airspace, someone gets cold feet, right? Yamamoto gets cold feet. And they somehow recall the whole thing. And they recall the whole thing, yeah. right? I mean, you know, I, I realize this, but just yeah, ro- yeah, roll sure, with yeah, me for right. a second. And that, um, you know, one of the bombers is pissed off about it, right? And so bombs a neutral tanker, right, um, you know, on international waters, right, on right. his way do back to... A, do you have hostilities? Is that a war crime? Yeah, I mean, I think, th- I don't think it's very hard once the plane, I think the plane is having but, launched... But, but what war was that, what, in what war was a crime committed in that hypothetical? The, the, the war that never with, started? No, my whole point is the war did start when they launched the planes, just even as though, the even operation... Though, even, with, though, even though they committed no act of hostilities against the United States, there was no armed attack... Launching the planes with belligerent intent, and then the, the last minute deciding not to cross the frontier, I think you still have the hostilities and so and so therefore the u.s could retaliate and therefore the u.s could yes you don't think they could if we found out that they gave a launch order and that and changed their mind and changed their minds in progress the attack you don't think we would and would consider ourselves on the defense maybe i just i just don't if you were roosevelt and you actually had the ability to then give the order to take out those carriers i think you would that's that's right he would that's right but that's fine i just my problem is we're not just talking about uses of force right we're talking about prosecutions and military commissions Right. Well, what we're talking about just existence or not. And war crimes. And war crimes, right? Well, existence or not of armed conflict. And how can you have a war crime without a war? And you're saying there's a war even if, like, what if we threw a war and only one party showed up? I'm saying they started There's a podcast a, episode title for you, by the way. What if we threw a war and one party showed up? That kind of gives you a little bit of the title advantage. It's, it's sort of your <laughs> title, not mine. Um, no, no, but in my hypothetical, you, you would agree in my hypothetical that the U.S. doesn't know right, that these planes were launched. They don't know that they turned around. They don't know, and they might not find out for years that they had belligerent intent, and yet there was still a war that could give rise to a war crime. At that moment, not forever and in all contexts, in your, in your example, it was a plane that took off from an aircraft carrier, launched to drop bombs in the United States. At the last minute, they diverted, so yeah. they didn't pull it off, and they bombed someone else. Now, that may present an outside this. If they bombed someone else, I don't know. That sounds like if it's not, you said it was a neutral All right, target. fine. So it's a, so it's a, it's this a, is like the MV Lindbergh, right? This is interesting. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. What's we're, the, um, we're changing the hypo. It has a, to be an American vessel. That's fine. There's a terrible movie. There's a terrible, like, um, 70s or 80s movie where... Um, Oh shoot! What's the? It's an aircraft carrier that got sucked through a vortex oh, and yeah, back yeah, in time. Yeah, yeah, There's like a hurt. What was that? That was yeah. A, um, I'm here to eternity. That. No, <laughs> it was later than that. I know what you're talking about. That's a classic. Okay, wait. We we were taking too long. Yes. Let's. So we have. I don't think we actually disagree as much as it might seem because I think we both agree that there's a fuzzy set aside that the averted belligerency scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about completed belligerency scenarios. I think we both agree that there's a... The final countdown. The final countdown. All right. I bet that doesn't hold up very well, but I'm going to try to go watch it anyways. It actually is right, a lot of Back fun. to our topic at so, hand. Yes. I think we agree that for completed initiation of hostilities, that there is a fuzzy question mm-hmm. that the law is not doesn't purport to be determinate as to when in the set of events that yep. culminate yep. in the initial attack, yep. whether it's the line, it's the Imperial Japanese fleet or the 9-11 plot itself, we agree. there's a fuzzy boundary. Um, how far back does it go is a really tricky question. So let me say two things about that. I agree with you completely. Let me say three things. One, I agree with you completely. Two, I happily concede that it's before the first plane hit the North Tower, right? right. Um Three, I don't think it goes all the way back to the USS Cole, which is why this is a separate problem in Nishiri, right? That is to say, at whatever point that happens, I mean, the Cole bombing is 11 months before, right? And so however fuzzy and gray this preparatory line is, I think it's a harder issue in Nishiri. But our agreements suggest to me that Poles 
deeply problematic statutory analysis was unnecessary. That he could have just said international law is fuzzy. Oh, yeah. No, look, the right way to write this opinion is to make a direct claim that a state of hostility, first of all, he, he could and I think should have begun by saying, look, you have this long train yeah. of mass violence yeah. initiated by Al Qaeda. And, and so the question of were we there yet right. at some point in relation to 9 11 plot, he should have, he could have defended on that ground. Now, he didn't want to, obviously. Was wanted it a problem? To to, wanted to try to resolve it as if, look, the statute just sort of encompasses by intent but the I entirety that, of the 9 But I think plot. this is a problem because I think that an analysis that pointed to the grayness of the actual international law of armed conflict on the subject would have been much easier for the government to defend if and when it would have to on a post-conviction appeal. You, know, you think they'll be, if they need to, they'll just make that argument eventually at the D.C. Circuit? But, I mean, so, so the, I mean, in criminal cases, appeals courts are not supposed to affirm based on grounds that weren't actually the ones found by the trial court, but see Judge Wilkins' concurrence in Alba Lule. Yeah, I was going to say, look, I, I think that all, we're off in sort of a unique... Uh, realm in which all usual standards and norms may be right away, because it's the 9/11 about, trial, so it, therefore no, let's warp it's the, the military commissions. And so I think the DC Circuit's not going to say, well, you know, trial judge Paul didn't talk about it. Just, this. It just reminds. Therefore, I'm not going to consider it. Just it. reminds I don't me see that happening it, at all. It, it reminds me of the sort of on bonk fight after the Al Bahani case back in 2010. Right where the panel had originally held the detention authority had absolutely nothing to do with international law, right, and that caused this whole kerfuffle. Right, right, right. Where eventually the on banc court didn't go on banc but said that was all dicta, right? We can get to the same result even with international law. Certainly, something we can agree on is that all this sort of endless machinations at the lower levels, when these are questions at all, ultimately have to be resolved at least by the D.C. Circuit, if not the Supreme Court, is just kicking the can down the road in unhelpful ways. And I'll just say, I mean, the one thing, uh, last point, and then we should move on, um, personal jurisdiction, which, by the way, I think is a misnomer, right? Because it's not really personal jurisdiction. It's jurisdiction over the offender, which is a species of subject matter jurisdiction. I was going to say, it feels more like subject matter, although that wouldn't inflect the way it's reviewed, would it? Well, so that's the thing, right? In Al-Nashiri, the D.C. Circuit purported to draw a distinction between personal jurisdiction challenges, i.e. whether the defendant is properly subject to jurisdiction, which are usually appropriate for collateral pretrial attack, ah. and subject matter jurisdiction challenges, like is the offense tribal by military commission, which is not. Why shouldn't that be subject to pretrial attack? Of course it should. Yeah. I mean, I know. No, it's, it's really no, no. ridiculous. Al-Nashiri 2 is just wrong, and it's wrong in ways that are actually like hilariously stupid now that we see what's happened in the in the aftermath. Yeah. But I say all this just to say, possible that Al Hasawi tries to file a habeas petition based on this. That would be interesting. And I'd like I'd like to see this. This is a another example, like previously, the military commission's yeah. uh, jurisdiction to try conspiracy and material support. These are sweepingly foundational to the whole idea that it's useful yep. to have military commissions. Yep. Let's resolve these. All right. Um, we'll wait, before, out a little before while. Before we leave it, though, there's oh. a couple other cool things that are talked about later in the opinion. Sorry. Because they go on to say... Uh, you know, it's not just that you have to find hostilities, which he does so find, uh, but you also have to show either that the guy was a material supporter of Al-Qaeda or of hostilities, rather, or a member of Al-Qaeda. And there's a few interesting things they say about that. So first of all, uh, the court kind of runs through the, uh, the the prima facie showing the government's made about uh, Hasawi's engagement with Al-Qaeda and says, look, this is not a, a, a on material support to hostilities. It's it's very clear he was engaged in hostilities, supporting actions by way of logistical support for these attacks. So no problem there. But let's go on and talk about membership in Al-Qaeda as an alternative basis for personal jurisdiction. And this is where it gets kind of interesting because Hasawi and one of the co-defendants, uh, 
uh, Abdulaziz uh, Ali, but, uh, aka Al Baluchi, Al Baluchi uh, had has a, they have a disagreement about how to do this. So Hasawi argues that well, what you need here to show membership, you got to have the formalities of bayat. You have to prove this guy swore an oath, and you can't actually prove that about me, so I'm not a member. Um, the court basically follows the habeas jurisprudence. Says, look, it's a functional test. Bayat would be relevant, but it's not necessary. And there's plenty of indicators here that you were functionally uh, in a member of Al Qaeda. Um, Abolucci argued instead for the continuous combat function test from the famous uh, direct participation in hostilities study uh, Nils Meltzer wrote for ICRC. Um, and Hasawi actually apparently said, like, no, we don't think it's a good idea. That's not the right argument. Specifically, don't import the standards of targeting law, if that is a standard of targeting law in international laws of war. Don't import that into the, the context that we're talking about here. And uh, the court says, well, we're going to talk about it anyways, and we don't think that that standard controls. And its argument in support is simply to refer to, to uh, the U.S. Army Law of War Manual and other statements of U.S. views on this question, which reject the idea that continuous combat function is a measure, uh, well, it's, it's not really clear what they're measuring, but a measure of something. It basically says that's not the law. And then for good measure, uh, Albulucci also had argued for the applicability of ex parte Milligan. So we get an uh, you know, designed for you and me to love a Milligan, Quirin, and my beloved favorite Gaetano Torito's case, Enrique Torito. You get this discussion about whether you know that's applicable here, and no surprise at all. Judge Pohl says this case is analogous to Quirin, not Milligan, because the claim here is that he is a member of the enemy force. And in Milligan, famously, whether it makes sense or not, Lambda Milligan was described by the Supreme Court majority as in no wise part of the enemy force. Even there, if although was, the government had argued that he was. Yeah, but the court said he wasn't. And, and that was central, central to True. the decision in that case. All right. So uh, that's that's the latest on where the hostilities begin. A real quick note on where they end or where they don't end. And I say this only because there were a number of widely circulated headlines over the past few days declaring that major combat operations in Iraq were over. And so what was that all about? It's it's much less than it seems. There was a ceremony that CENTCOM had to formally disband and uh, case the colors for the Combined Joint Forces Land Component Command in Baghdad. Oh, that old chestnut. You know that. that so that was that was the non-special operations ground for ground forces joint coalition command on the ground in Baghdad for Iraq. So it's basically done. But that doesn't mean that anything functionally changed at that point. First of all, the special operations component of anti-ISIS operations continues unchanged in Iraq and Syria. And much more importantly, so does the CENTCOM overall combined joint task force, which is the body that commands and oversees the coalition anti-Islamic state activities in both Iraq and Syria. And airstrikes continue unabated. For example, between April 20th and April 26th, 26 airstrikes, both in Iraq and Syria. Um, if by major combat operations, we mean that we had a ground operations command and control center for regular coalition forces, non-SOF forces, then yeah, that's over uh, for now. Uh, but it does not mean troops are leaving Iraq. It does not, or at least not immediately. It certainly doesn't mean a change to any of the air campaign, which is where the vast majority of the action has been all along. So I don't think people should get too excited about the legal implications, notwithstanding those headlines. All right. So I, I, I agree. I just, I just, yeah. 
it would be nice if at some point a court were actually to, you know, I mean, we still have litigation going on over end of hostilities. We have litigation going on over the beginning. I, the last, I mean, I, I, I you, don't, you don't think that we're not in an armed conflict currently? No, I, no, no. I, I think we, I think we are. But I do think, I mean, I just think that, you know. At some point, it might be nice for uh, not the end, but for the beginning question. For the, well, you know, the beginning question, for, sure, for a higher the, court to actually maybe settle the matter. That I agree because people are being prosecuted in ways that implicate that question a little bit. All right, um, that took longer than I expected. So let's go quickly through the rest of the Gitmo headlines. Lightning round. So headline number one, um, apparently, according to a Carol Rosenberg story from yesterday, um, lawyers for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed have argued that even a preliminary and incomplete MRI of their client showed evidence of brain trauma that should have ramifications for his ability to both stand trial and probably potentially be sentenced to death, um, but that right now what they're seeking is a more complete MRI, because apparently they did not get the full report that they had sought to fully diagnose his condition. You said, I think, at the top, you know, you don't see this going anywhere. I think it's just another headache, right, for... Is that a, that's a terrible pun. Oh, sorry. I didn't even mean that. <laughs> I know you didn't. I think it's just another um, uh, piece of baggage um, that will be saddling down a post-conviction, post-death sentence appeal. Although I guess appeal. this one, right, this one's not necessarily sort of MILCOM-specific. So if he had been transferred recently to civilian prosecution, we we would inevitably be having a course, as yep. we had with, like, Padilla's prosecution... Yep. Sort of a look at what happened in custody during the, the interrogation phase. Yep. Therefore, don't prosecute or have leniency, et cetera. Well, but, but I gather, though, that the, that the purpose of these medical exams is not just a sort of a good old-fashioned Rochin motion, right? It shocks the conscience dismissal. I actually think it's a to start to, to, to build a case about his competence. To stand trial at all? Uh, to stand trial at all and certainly to be sentenced to death, right? And so... so it's interesting because there's two different ways in which mental injury could, could matter here. One could be look at this terrible... Th this lingering evidence of head injury shows something terrible happened in custody. And so, yeah, it's a, you know, outrageous government conduct motion dismissed, which is not going to prevail in the 9-11 right. case. Um, or, as you say, it could be in support of a current claim of incompetency to be functionally able to, rep to, to present, protect his own interests and therefore stand trial. Um, you know, we'd obviously have to know a lot more about his actual current uh, cognitive Situation. Totally. I, I'd be I'd be very surprised if this ultimately derails anything. Um, yeah, I just listen derail maybe not, but just yet further Michigas right to sort of infect the proceedings and to cause trouble afterwards. But we'll see. All right. Um, still nothing. This is just your weekly reminder that we are still waiting for the CMCR to issue its completely not last word ruling on all of the abatement. Michigas in the, the, the seven layer case. dip. The seven layer dip. They're eating, um, They're not eating my seven layer. They're dip. not. They're, they're, well, they're slowly eating. They're, your seven they're layer admiring dip. it apparently. Yeah, they're staring at it. Um, you know, you and I are both of the view that they're not getting the last word, and so all they're doing now is wasting everybody's time. Agreed. Um, yesterday, General Mattis, uh, General Secretary Mattis was supposed to report on plans for sort of future uh, incapacitation and transfer of detainees picked up in the armed conflicts in which we're currently engaged. I assume the report was, in fact, filed on time. We just haven't seen a copy of it yet. To me, I mean, I, so I think there was a Guardian piece yesterday suggesting that this could be a really big deal. Bobby, I suspect the report's going to be a whole lot of 
keeping on, right? Yeah, totally, total boilerplate. I'd be really surprised if it actually gets down in the weeds in any kind of right. novel or here, here are this here are eleven though. new people we're proposing to send to Guantanamo. Yeah, it's no, not, no, it's not going to be anything tactical like that. No, no it's just going to say obviously we are we are preserving our authorities at Guantanamo. Yeah. Obviously we're preserve like you know we're going to preserve everything and you know announce no actual change in policy. Yeah, it's hard it's hard to believe that in this particular administration, which isn't exactly known for its. <laughs> Uh, hyper rigid uh, process that the deadline of 90 days to produce this report was really designed to uh, break loose the prospect of bringing new detainees to Guantanamo and, and other changes. You know, one of the questions that's out there is what about the, the lingering group of detainees who were previously cleared as eligible for transfer out of Guantanamo? Yep. Um, I don't think anyone thinks that whatever Trump's ultimate decision on that's going to be, it'll be inflected much by best report but maybe you never know maybe it'll maybe it'll all leak out soon um all right so getting those stuff yay yeah um speaking of detainees right doe versus mattis quick yeah. update the we oral get, argument was we'll friday keep, was we'll, thursday yeah let's we'll keep this one brief because we've talked about it so many times on the show this is the question of whether judge chutkin was right to prohibit the transfer of john doe from u.s military custody in iraq to his other country of citizenship. He's not just American, he's also Saudi. In fact, he has deeper ties to Saudi Arabia by a long shot. Um, the Saudis apparently have agreed to take him. Judge Chutkin said- Well, do we know that? Yeah. That the Saudis have agreed to take him? Why, why would you doubt it? I mean, the government represented it and put it in sworn- No, 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 but they haven't, they haven't said it's Saudi. Oh, right. They still haven't said, it, oh, said it's Saudi. You're supposed to say the Saudis. Right, right. right. So the, right, the, it's a the redacted country it's a secret that rhymes with Saudi Arabia. Except all the, the uh, incomplete redactions and so oh forth make God. it super crystal clear that it's Saudi. But let's um, still have a classified argument session. Exactly. Well, you know, I, ne- we're not going to go into that. But just suffice to say that the argument was a repeat more or less of a prior oral argument they'd had on a related question. I think here, here are the takeaways. Uh First of all, Judge Henderson, for a second time, was not just not there in, in person, but didn't even dial in or, or in any way participate by audio. Um, you tell me, you're the Fed Courts guru. At a certain point, I, I, once, I understand, but, but this is a pretty big case. Is it odd to you? If it weren't Judge Henderson, I would say yes. It's is odd she, to is me. she notorious for just not participating in oral argument? No, no. For so so she doesn't. I know she doesn't physically go, but she can dial in. Yeah, I don't know why she doesn't do that. I you know the the rules are such that as long as you listen to the oral argument transcript, right? Like as long yeah. as it's in the recording, most courts will allow you to participate and to vote and well, to write opinions. I listened. Can I? <laughs> <laughs> and you're on the panel. Oh, I, I forgot a, yeah. that important question. Yeah. Yes. Um, Dear DC Circuit, Bobby and I have some thoughts. Here's our here are our separate opinions. <laughs> hey, I've been posting like mad. That's my effort to to submit my opinion. All right, so setting that little wrinkle aside, um, you reading the tea leaves. Obviously, you can't tell for sure because a we have no idea what Henderson thinks about any of this. Um, and Cernovasan and Wilkins bo- gave both sides a pretty hard time, I mm-hmm. think quite appropriately, testing out these very interesting and complex issues. It still boils down, it still should boil down to deciding, is Valentine a rule of general applicability, meaning that you have to have a treaty or a statute that authorizes the transfer of the citizen to a third country? Or or is, is Munaf applicable here? And, and is Munaf best read as an exception to Valentine that was only in that unique factual circumstance? Or does it have a little bit broader breadth? And you can't really tell which way the court's going to come down on that. I, I think you and I have agreed that 
it's within the realm of reasonable legal interpretation for the court to kind of go either way with this. Obviously, uh, one's first principles about uh, what's at stake here, both from the government and the individual perspective, are going to drive that decision. Um, I just want to emphasize uh, two things. I thought it was very interesting. I believe the ACLU is arguing that Munaf actually isn't even on its own terms an exception to Valentine, but just a fact pattern that happened to satisfy Valentine, right. claiming that some combination of the AUMF in that case, but more importantly, uh, the bilateral agreement between the United States and Iraq as blessed by the Security Council back in that era in Iraq, where the transfer was to Iraq for prosecution purposes, that that actually was the positive legal authority Valentine requires. Now, I think I think that I disagree with that reading of Munaf. My reading of Munaf is not that the court said, well, Valentine could be an obstacle, but turns out it's not because we have what we need. The court, I think, went out of its way. The opinion goes out of its way to actually carve out an exception for the particular circumstance where a person voluntarily goes into the combat zone, gets captured there, and is wanted by the territorial authority for prosecution under uh, under criminal laws. And so I don't think you can kind of avoid the choice between Munaf and Valentine by saying, hey, Munaf was just an application of Valentine. Uh, secondly, the judges... And the litigants repeatedly kept coming back to this question of, but is Doe validly legally detained as an enemy combatant in the first place, legally and factually? And, and is, is it somehow necessary to resolve that question or is it inappropriate not to resolve that question? before transferring him. And I, I'm curious what you think, Steve. I very much disagree that that should be an issue. And I think it's a conflation. Yep. I think it's not the government's argument that because he's an enemy combatant, therefore we can send him to this place or that place. Right. I think the claim is as if they're not claiming he's an enemy combatant. They're still claiming that because he's a dual citizen of Saudi Arabia, they have the sovereign interest requisite, combined with the fact that he voluntarily went into the combat zone anyway. Because presumably, insofar as the government's authority rested solely on the fact that he is an enemy combatant, then the government's authority to transfer would then have to merge with the merits of his exactly. habeas petition. Yeah, exactly. You'd have to resolve the habeas first. And of course, that's Which, part of By the way, Judge Chuckin, still waiting. Yeah, exactly. Like, go ahead and resolve that one for us, and maybe we can resolve it all in one fell swoop. Okay, so we'll see what happens. We don't know how the court's going to come down. Indeed. All right, speaking of courts coming down, um, really interesting. We don't talk a lot about FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act on this podcast. Um, Steve Aftergood sent around a really interesting uh, ruling by Chief Judge McMahon from New York that was released last week, even though it was filed, I think, earlier in April. Um, and the basic facts are um, a reporter brought a FOIA suit to, against the CIA for the disclosure of emails, of information containing emails that the CIA had sent to three reporters. Um, and the reporter's argument was that basically by sending these emails with this information to these reporters, the CIA had selectively disclosed the information in a manner that made the national security exemption of FOIA no longer applicable. Um, and in a ruling, in a 23-page ruling that was uh, uh, sort of released, well, it was released last week, it was circulated yesterday, um, Judge McMahon says, no, that's not true, right? That, that even though the CIA um, disclosed these emails to these three reporters, that was not selective disclosure sufficient to justify, you know, to override the, the FOIA national security exemption. So, uh, I only skimmed this. You read it much more closely. My, my skim indicated to me she was very critical of the idea of the selective yes. disclosure doctrine. It's yes. not just that, well, that's a totally robust doctrine, but it just happens not to apply here. But rather that it sounded to me on skim as if she was 
skeptical of the idea that that even was an option, or at least yes. that it had to be an extremely rare circumstance. Yes, and so she was, and and I think she was also, if you read this opinion and also her earlier opinion from January in the same case, she's rather pissed off at the CIA, um, right, for sort of getting itself into trouble and then trying to sort of you know argue its way out of trouble. Is, is she? Yeah, there's a little bit of frustration that but, shows but up. She, in the, but she's not letting that steer her towards like a good judge, right? She records her frustration, right? There but you go. but but still follows the law, right? Now, there's one interesting silver lining to the opinion. I mean, I suspect the silver opinion lining would be from who's well. That, this is where I'm, there's one. Okay, how about this? There's one interesting uh, feature of the opinion, which I'll leave to you whether it's a feature or a bug. All right, better. Yes. Okay, so. Um, We've talked briefly before about how in the context of like the OLC drone memo, there's a Second Circuit ruling in a case called New York Times versus DOJ where the selected disclosure of parts of the memo, right, actually made it hard for the government to then say that the content of the memo wasn't classified or was classified, right? And right. so that's what led to the actual ultimate disclosure of the OLC drone memo. Um, what Judge McMahon is saying here is where the government chooses to selectively disclose to just a handful of information, right? Of course, those individuals are free to turn around and do whatever they do. The government has waived its privacy interest in the information with respect to those individuals, right? But that still doesn't mean that it's public. And so what that suggests, Bobby, is that carefully orchestrated leaks right, that's of national seems. security information to reporters are actually not going to open the government up to FOIA liability for the leaked information, which, if you're a reporter, might actually be a good ruling. Yeah, I, so I, I think I agree with you, and I will r retract my, my snarky uh, <laughs> you know, comment a moment ago. I think that basically the thrust of this is, look, the leaking system such as it is, can carry on without the government having to feel that if there's been a leak, then all hell breaks loose and all the, all the protections are waived. And so that's sort of uh, saying that we will continue to have gas in the gas stations of Washington, right? So Crazy. Running the way it usually but that, does. So then the interesting question becomes, right, so if the government does leak, right, and it's an authorized leak, as it appears to have been in this case, um, does that at the very least preclude it from then prosecuting the, leak, the, the recipient of the leak? If it's if it's an authorized leak, yeah, yeah I think we'd have to, right? Oh, I, I, yeah. I would think so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So interesting stuff. I, I suspect it's not the last we'll hear about this case. This just has all the feelings of a Second Circuit appeal to me. Yeah, that's okay. We'll keep an eye on that one. That's a very interesting case. Um, all right, legislative legislative update. For, uh, now let's let's pivot to the Hill, away from the courts and to Congress. Let's go to Trumplandia. I was going to go to Capitol Hilllandia, but those aren't that different. They've these merged days. in this case. But, uh, in this case. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, all all right. right. So really quickly, Thursday morning. Um, I was a little surprised, but happily so, that the so-called Mueller production bill, the Special Counsel Independence and Integrity Act, because there were two, one was the Independence Act, right. one, they just merged they just them, merge them. Um, got out of the House Judiciary Committee, uh, House Senate Judiciary Committee on a 14 to 7 vote with Chairman Grassley and Senators Tillis, Graham, and Flake joining all of the Democrats in voting in favor of an amendment actually authored by Chairman Grassley. Um, that really actually goes even further than the Graham and Tillis bills to codify the special counsel regulations and to create a judicial review provision for removal. Um, Bobby, I think the most important feature of the Graham, of the Graham, of the Grassley Amendment that's not getting reported by the media is, for better or for worse, it has a retroactivity clause. Oh. Which means that it could be, so in a scenario in which, you know, the special counsel is removed inappropriately, um, Congress could then pass this bill. And at least the text of the bill, well, we'll save the constitutional question for another say, day. I was going to say, I wonder, it's, 
it, it would raise some issues, but at least the text of the bill would theoretically allow a special counsel to challenge his removal, even if he's removed before the bill is passed. I'm trying to think what the argument from the administration would be to deny the the constitutionality of the retroactivity position. So it can't be usually usually it can't be an individual right. Right. Usually a retroactivity argument is sounds right. in due process. Exactly. That's why right? I'm having trouble. Is it a separation of powers? So argument? so there's a line of cases that actually I hate to say this sort of came up in Dalmasi um, <laughs> about the about Congress's power to change the terms of an office after the office has been filled. Right, okay. And apply those changes to the incumbent office holder. Oh, interesting. But I guess in this case, it wouldn't actually be changing the terms, right? The, the standard is, the removal standard is the same. Yeah. It would just be providing for judicial review. And so we have this novel right. question yeah. about whether it violates some retroactivity principle found somewhere in the Constitution for Congress to retroactively provide for judicial review of an unchanged substantive standard that was not previously reviewable. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so the, the question, the practical question remains, will uh, Leader McConnell allow <sighs> this to come to the floor? So, you know, he said, he has said all the, you know, he has said all the no's that he can say. Yeah. Um, I do wonder if the fact that there were four Republicans, including Chairman Grassley, might create pressure. I don't know. I'm not holding my breath. I will just say, it's a very good bill. Um, McConnell's objections, unlike some of our friends in the academy, are not that the bill raises constitutional problems. He's never said that. I know, because it doesn't. Um, it's, Ooh! it's a political objection, right? Your, your view is it doesn't raise constitutional problems? Uh, raises them, sure. Okay. Raises them. But, but you, don't, you, don't actually, raise them, you don't think but it's I, unconstitutional? I'm trying to agree with you. I know, you're shocked into silence. That's not that rare on this program. No, I'm just I'm just pleasantly surprised that that you that you share my view of Morrison versus Olson. Well, I'm not saying I share every jot and tittle of Fair your enough. view. I'm but, just saying that this bill the seems particulars. carefully designed okay. to avoid those problems. Fair enough. That's that's. I just want to record that and play it for everybody. I want to <laughs> no, have like an no, audio clip on I'm Twitter. I'm saddled with that for history. Let's be clear. At I your confirmation hearing, your constitute. Yeah, there would be no such thing. Um, the podcast ought to uh, insulate us both from future future trips to Washington. I think for that's those right. Neither of us are getting jobs. All right. Um, so Whew. so you know we'll see what happens. I, I do think at least having the bill out there and through committee now creates at least a little more of a lever against a rash Saturday Night Massacre repeat. But who knows? Yeah, you know, I th- here's the thing with the elections looming. Yeah, I think the McConnell's not going to move this bill. Probably and not. So there's months and months of window in which this bill's not going to be out there. But that retroactivity business, I hadn't known about that. Very interesting. All right. So um, really quickly, I think we want to say very little about the denouement of the Hipsy investigation other than, thank God it's over. <laughs> it's over unless it comes back like a bad sequel. Um, these uh, recommendations are kind of fun to <laughs> glance at. You know, one of them, as you said earlier, is, is repeal the Logan Act. What do you, it, what, <laughs> why did they throw that in there, Steve? Because that, you know, because Michael Flynn did nothing wrong. And so it's a way of sort of, is it sort of a gesture towards the, uh, n- there was nothing to see there. Why is any of this happening? We shouldn't even have the Logan Act. Right. Which, by the way, so, you know, Susan Hennessy said this, and I totally agree with it. Um, the Logan Act ought to be repealed. Like, it has lots of, I, I think it's unconstitutional on its face, right? Um, I think it's almost, it'd be almost impossible to apply in a constitutional matter. Um, that doesn't mean that there ought not to be a modern conversation about what kinds of activities we want to prevent both fully private citizens and transition officials from engaging in in their respective capacities. So I would prefer if they had said, update the Logan Act, yeah. right? And, and indeed, ah, this, yeah. this, to Actually, me, it's not a bad idea. this to me is a conversation worth having, right? Which is wherever you come down on the politics 
of no collusion, right, and of Russian interference. I do think there are clearly f holes and gaps in the legal system that this conversation had, that this whole affair has exposed, that a responsible legislature would carefully think about responses to. Wouldn't that be nice? I know. Okay, so I'd say all that. Um, let me just say two things. I, I really do hope folks will read both reports because I actually think the Minority Report is a very good read, especially insofar as it provides some of the transcripts of the interviews. Um, I just want to point out, I, no one's going to be surprised to know what I think of the Majority Report. I'll just say this. Trey Gowdy, co-author of the Majority Report, went on TV on Sunday and said, of course, we didn't talk to everybody. Interesting. Awkward. So Awkward if, you're, if you're conceding that you didn't talk to all the witnesses that the minority says you should have, aren't you conceding that you may have jumped the gun and rushed to conclusions did, there a little bit, bucko? I, I don't know what happened there, but did he concede that we didn't talk to everybody we should have? Or did he say we didn't talk to everybody? Um, There's a material difference there. I think, I don't remember if he literally said should have, but I think it was clear in context that he meant that like there were folks who were not interviewed yeah. who perhaps should have been. He's been much more interesting since he decided not to run for your election. Yeah, except that his name is right up there on the report. Well, let's uh, elsewhere in the report, you've got recommendation number six. Congress should consider updating the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to cover malicious international cyber actors. This is something that uh, came up with Hipsy last year as well. This idea that it's hard sometimes when you're dealing with what appears to be a foreign-based cyber intrusion, but you don't know who the hacker in question, whether they're responsive to the Russian government, or is it a private actor? Is it, It's sort of the sort of stuff that uh, Dr. Tim Maurer from Carnegie talks about in his recent much-talked-about book, Cyber Mercenaries, which explores this realm of uh, gray zone actors who have some degree of uh, connection to a state, but they're hacking for reasons that you can't always necessarily attribute back to the state. Um, it's it's an effort to say that in those circumstances, if it's a threat to international uh, for U.S. national security or defense, and it's a, it's a foreign actor, then you should be able to treat that as a qualifying foreign power or agent of a foreign power. Uh, and, and clarify that the FISA court can issue an order, a Title I order, in that circumstance. This, Steve, I think is a lot like the move we saw with uh, terrorism many years ago to add the lone wolf provision to overcome the problem of, hey, we've got this, you know, Zacharias Musawi. Right now, we can't really prove he's he's working for some specific group, but he's foreign, and we know he's working for somebody, or he's dangerous anyways, even on his own. Let's just uh, get a uh, clarification that the FISC should be able to issue an order in that circumstance. Um, wouldn't be surprised if we see that change, not because of this, but eventually. And then last, I'll note, recommendation 17, which is a recommendation to Congress not to do something. This is interesting. <laughs> there was a lot of, there's been a lot of talk on the right about how, you know, Obama should have done more when he knew of these intrusions. Why didn't he do more? And there's been some talk about Congress perhaps trying to legislate thresholds of action to require the president to take certain retaliatory or responsive steps when certain things happen by way of interference with the U.S. information space. And I thought this is a very responsible recommendation, basically saying, like, look, we can't imagine all the circumstances involved here. Leave this. It basically says, even though Obama blew it, we still <laughs> think that we should leave this in the discretion of the president. So not an entirely reckless uh, set of recommendations there. 
All right. Do we have anything else? Uh, one more thing: the FISA transparency report. Right. Oh, this yeah. is um, actually, I think, one of the salutary features of the USA Freedom Act of 2015. One of the few salutary features um, is this requirement of public disclosure of an annual report from the FISA court on data. Um, now, I think there was some overreaction to the oh, totally. top line. And I will total mea culpa. As soon as I saw it, I was like, 26 applications denied in full last year. Oh, my God. That's huge. And 50 denied in part. What happened to the old saw about how the FISA court is a rubber stamp and only only says no, you know, if at most once or twice a year. And so I, I did assume we were comparing apples to apples with that long run of uh, FISA court disclosed information in the past that seemed to show very few denials, and I thought we were seeing something dramatic. No, no, not so much. But but I do want. So I I actually think in the process we missed two of the interesting pieces of the report. Oh, wait, so, let's explain why oh, this is not apples. I'm to sorry. Apples. Go ahead. The reason it's not apples to apples is that the the data that we're all familiar with um, produced over time by the Justice Department. Uh, was reporting the number of times that full final submissions to the court, sort of the, the most formal stage right. to measure this from. At that stage, they do almost always. Right. Whereas this is actually giving us the whole bulk, the whole the whole picture. It's encompassing even what you might just simply describe as the the not as formal preliminary application. Which, by the way, we always knew happened, right? And so it was actually, uh, you and I would always say in response to this, a rubber stamp pushback, well, you don't see what happens behind the scenes before you get to the right. final and, application. And so, Endless times, I think you and I both have been in class or in public settings where we said, look, we don't have data on this, but it's it's universally claimed by people who do have firsthand experience that it is very common to submit something in preliminary form and get feedback from the court. And sometimes it's just withdrawn at that point. Yep. Sometimes it's modified. And now we actually have some data showing that it does happen to the tune, apparently, of some 26 times. Okay. So I want to talk briefly about the table on page four. Um, and then I want to talk about the amicus stuff. So really quickly. Um, so the table on page four of the report breaks out all of the applications and what were granted, what were modified, what were denied by authority, which I actually think is helpful, right? So there's lines like 1805, that's Title I of FISA, right? 1824, that's the Title II trap and trace pen register provision, right? Um, 1861, right? That's the revised phone records provision, right? 1881A. So 1881A that's Section 702, right? That is the sort of core controversial authority under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. And is it trying to capture the number of certifications sought or the number of... Here, so, so here's what's interesting. So if you look for 1881A, applications or certifications, zero. Orders granted, zero. Orders modified, redacted. Right. So that that looks right to me, what I would have expected, because I, I forget what date range this is covering. I think it's calendar year 2017. I think this goes into the questionable, the period when there was a question about renewal yep. of, of 702 and what was going on is you had existing authorities. Oh, I agree. Maybe, maybe there's there one certification. The number should be zero or one, right? Well, so this is my question, right? right? The number is either zero or one. Why is that classified? Why, why is the modification classified? Why, why, why is the number of times that the FISA court modified an 1881A directive yeah, hard classified? Yeah, hard to know. Hard so to the, know, but it's also hard to imagine that they did it for a, you know, uh, some sort of inappropriate reason. Maybe, but like, what would that be? No, no. I, I just I don't understand. So suppose the answer is one, right? Or suppose mm -hmm. the answer is two. Like, the whole point of this transparency report is to have yeah. some sense of what, what that number is. What is the footnote on that number? So say? here's what the footnote says. This number the redacted number, reflects certifications submitted during calendar, uh, to calendar 2016 that were decided in 2017. No additional certifications were submitted during 2017. After completing the declassification review, the U.S. Department of Justice has advised the AO that this number is currently classified for national security reasons. 
why? I just yeah. I, the whole point of this enterprise is to actually have some transparency, not about what the certifications are, but about how many there are. Right. It does it does make you think that it's it's a it's a different number than you might intuitively. So expect. what if it's two? Right. That well, would be or, or that, five or but, five. That would be interesting. Right. But what's what it would be interesting. The question is like, so what is given away by telling us? That's what the that's number is? that's what I, that that's my exasperation. Yeah. Other than that, there actually might be more than we know about. Um, and then on the Amica stuff, what's interesting is um, two different things. During the reporting period, no individual was appointed to serve as an Amicus by the FISA courts. So I'm glad the Amicus provision is being used robustly. Oh, but it, it wait, I, I'm, I'm going. Used. I'm okay. going. I'm yeah. going. But. There were three matters in which the court advised the government that it was considering appointment of an amicus, um, and the government ultimately did not proceed with the proposed applications at issue or modify the final application such that they did not present a novel or significant question of law, thereby obviating a requirement for consideration as to the appropriateness of appointment of amicus. So what's interesting to me is yeah. the amicus provision is actually doing different work from what it was meant to do, right? The the purpose of the amicus provision was to provide the FISA court with adversarial briefing right. whenever the government was trying to take some kind of interesting new position, rightly or wrongly. And instead, the FISA court is deploying the specter of an amicus. By the way, there's no provision in the statute contemplating this advice about an a, a appointment, right? And the FISA court is using the specter of an amicus to basically say, hey, government, are you sure? Right? It, you sure you want to take this position? And you're interpreting the data as showing that the government is being sort of threatened by the FISA court with something and then backing down? Not or? not threatened, but being right. cajoled. Right. I, I think cajoled is better, right? That, that the FISA court saying, hey, government, we're thinking about appointing an amicus if you proceed with this. And right. the government's saying, well, tell you what, let's find a way to make the amicus justification go away. Yeah, which is not necessarily a bad thing. That sounds like no, a, no, no, a good No, 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 no. This strikes me as a wholly unintended effect, right? But also interesting that the government... Right is not saying sure. Like we'll you know we'll modify it to you know we'll, let's go let's have the amicus. They're actually saying no, we don't want the amicus. Yeah, they're saying that look, we're not trying to go there. How about we just keep it here? So, th so that's that, that actually to me is the single most interesting nugget in this yeah, whole report. I do think it's critical to listeners to understand because we know from multiple examples in the public record there have been amicus appointments. Indeed. So this data covers a particular you know time in the past where it hadn't happened yet, I guess. Or or it had. We know that like Amy Jeffers has had appointments. Like Lord Donahue had an appointment. Yeah, I mean maybe these, maybe this is just covering. 2017, like calendar 2017, and those appointments were from like late 2016. Maybe so. Right. Yeah. And, and the cases just went on for a while. Right. I mean, that's entirely possible. But I completely agree that it's interesting that it's sort of being leveraged by the court, or at least the court is giving notice and it happens to have the effect of leveraging. So all this is to say, yay, Congress, this data is nothing but good. I look forward to comparing next year's report to this year's Isn't report. It'd be great to have good government. <sighs> Really? That's where you're going? Oh, All right. yeah. we're, we are, we're out of time, eh? Uh, we're out of time. So so how about three sentences on the Avengers? I will do three sentences on Westworld, and then we'll talk about briefly why the NBA playoffs Okay, so, so first of all, you don't. I'm not going to spoil anything. So people who are about to sign off because they don't want to hear spoiler alerts no on spoilers. the Avengers. All I'm going to say is um, part of what's fun about these movies are the Easter eggs. Uh -huh. And there's one phenomenal non-Marvel Easter egg that I just can't believe they did. But uh, it, it's something that if you read the credits, there's a clue that it's in there. And so that was pretty fun. I saw it when just you know we're sitting through the credits, and I saw this thing go by, and I thought, wait, what is that? And I had to go look it up. Wait, so, so the Easter egg is only in the credits, or no, the no, credit the, refers back the, to the Easter egg? Exactly. There's, okay. a, there's an Easter egg you'll never spot okay. in the moment. But it's the clue is really Because you know how in the Naked Gun movies, they actually put jokes in the credits? No, but we go back and watch. Oh, that. so in the Naked Gun movies, the credits are actually full of like not. So some movies now put like interesting like scenes or right. outtakes in the right. credits. So Naked Gun, I think, was the first to do this. In the credits, there's no special visual. Just every couple of lines, there's a line that's a joke. 
Oh, that's pretty like, great. You know, um, keeps you there. Like, what's a grip? Question mark. All right, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so, all right, so good, good tip on yep. Avengers: Infinity War. Um, Westworld. Okay, no spoilers here. Good. This is the best freaking show on television right now, and you have that got good. to you have got to all catch right. up. I will make a priority because yet. you know the the. All I will say without, I think, giving anything away is in this week's episode, we saw more of the real world outside of Westworld than we had seen before, and it is fascinatingly revealing. Okay. Is it kind of like Black Mirror-ish sort of? No. Okay. All right. No. Indeed. Indeed. I think, I don't think this will give anything away. I think the clues from the real world in this week's episode make it seem like this is not nearly as far into the future as the first season might have led us to believe. Oh, very cool. All Um, right. Which I don't think is spoiling anything about the plot. Um, Okay. And then really quickly on the NBA playoffs, they are too freaking long. Game seven of one series was yesterday. Yeah, I know. They do need to tighten things up, make them work a little harder, eh? I mean, you guys can't play on, I mean, like, you know, you can't do like baseball players you gotta do. You got to spread it out for TV, I guess. I will say it looks like we're heading towards uh, Warriors and Rockets, which we're, is... We're clearly heading toward Warriors and Rockets. Which is the actual NBA championship. I think that's clearly correct. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. I like it that the Warriors are kind of regaining their mojo at just in time. The Rockets look really tough. I, I'm going to get in um, trouble with, 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 with certain friends of mine who I've named before on the podcast but won't name here just so that no one tells them. This is going to be a Cleveland thing? I really, I, I was rooting for Indiana very hard yesterday. It was easy to root for them, you know, but I got to say, I like LeBron. and it, Cleveland, I don't think, I don't know what's going to come out of the East. I don't really care what comes well, but, out of the but East. But here's the problem, right? The Celtics are not the Celtics because they, And because, yet right? they keep winning. But, but I mean, oh, what? They beat the, the who's the Milwaukee's? They, they, they beat they Milwaukee. They beat the Sixers last, you know, yesterday. So they keep doing it somehow, some I, way. I, I'm, I'm going to go. It makes them sort of the Cinderella. Yeah, I'm going big here for a second. Even though they're down one nothing, I think the Sixers are going to win the Eastern Conference. Oh my gosh! And then be and then get destroyed, swept in the just destroyed by whoever comes out of it. Unless the Houston Golden State series like means that they all kill each other. So I think Golden State's going to. That's my prediction right now. The whole really Golden State. Wow. Yeah. This feels like this feels like the Rockets here to me. They've been really great, but. The Warriors have been there, and I think it counts a lot. I, I think the million-dollar question is, is will Steph be 100% by the time that series starts? Yeah. It, it might help them, actually, a little bit with sharing the ball around yeah, if yeah, he's not yeah. really able to go that much. All right, well, All right. Uh, I, so I, I guess I should say stay tuned, but the, at the rate these playoffs are going, we're going to have like 11 more episodes before we get to the NBA Finals. What will happen first, the end of Dovey Mattis or the NBA Championship? NBA Championship. Wow, big prediction for oh, Bobby. Yeah, safe one. Um, well, you heard it here first. All right, so on that note, uh, follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney. Follow me at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Tell your friends. Tell your, you know, um, Japanese soldiers from World War II. Uh, Everybody that, else. That I don't know if that's a thing. You're trying to widen the audience as wide as possible? I mean, you know, can it get much narrower? I guess it could. Uh, yeah. Uh, do spread the word. We'd love more listeners, and we appreciate you listening. And we love your feedback. So on that note, stay safe out there. Adios.